This is the Chauncey DeVega Show at TruthWorks Network. Mondays, 8 p.m. is a rebroadcast of the Chauncey DeVega Show with Chauncey DeVega. We are respectable Negroes. In this episode of the Chauncey DeVega Show, Chauncey talks with author Frank Schaefer. Hello, I am Chauncey DeVega. You may recognize my voice from Ring of Fire Radio with Mike Papantonio, the BBC, Sirius XM, or the Tom Hartman Radio Show. And you may have read some of my essays at places like Salon and Alternet. I would like to thank all of you for listening to, downloading, tweeting, and sharing the eponymously named podcast known as the Chauncey DeVega Show. And they ran a story by somebody named Chauncey DeVega. Quote, I find black garbage pail kids, black conservatives, fascinating. That's just unbelievable, you know. It's- he goes by the name of Chauncey DeVega. You know, I've been called Uncle Tom, Oreo, Oreo sellout, shameless, but this is a new one. Well, let's talk now to Chauncey DeVega. As my man Chauncey DeVega of the blog We Are Respectable Negroes says, I have author and blogger Chauncey DeVega here with us. Hello there. I think you know that I'm doing my own version of the Super Bowl shuffle. The Super Bowl shuffle. The Super Bowl shuffle. Because the New England Patriots, my beloved New England Patriots, in a miraculous victory, defeated the Seattle Seahawks. Insert gloating smiley face. I know there are some folks out there who believe in some sort of uh, dignity and victory and you should be humble. No, 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 no. Not in this dojo. Cobra Kai. But in all seriousness, uh, it was just a wonderful game to watch. And as folks who listen to the podcast, known as the Chauncey DeVega Show, or go to chaunceydevega.com, know, I made a prediction about the game, and I said whoever had the ball last would win. Little did I know it would come as a result of an interception. So just wonderful, the Pats actually had their parade in Boston today. And I hope all of you have survived snowpocalypse 1 and 2. In Chicago, we had even more snow over the weekend. And folks are still digging out. There's a custom, I don't know if it's here in Chicago or just in every major city, where where people put out chairs to protect their parking spaces that have been shoveled out. Number one, move the chairs. And number two, I would just take the car and hit it. But it's interesting how these local community norms have evolved, where you have a classic free rider problem, where folks go out and shovel out their own space, and somebody comes and takes it and puts a chair in and I'm surprised there isn't more violence because of it. But again, that is an observation for another time. Really cool episode lined up. You can hear my voice, my beautiful timbre, or is it timbre? Timbre or timbre of my voice is a little off. I got a case of the cooties. I don't know if it was from a Typhoid Mary on the CTA, Chicago Transit Bus, or it was from a semi-wash student. And students today, some of y'all, you got to wash. You got to put on the deodorant. You got to take a shower because let me tell you, I'm getting tired of having to open up doors in these seminar rooms because people is funky. And I don't know if you can actually call somebody out for that. They'd probably like write it up in your evaluation or complain to a dean. This professor said that we stink and need to wash our behinds. Another thing to think about, too, is I did not know why so many folk want to get up in your personal space and make you sick. And my health is pretty good. Actually, I would dare say exceptional. I drink my ginger tea, take my ginger pills, ginseng. I take my uh, GNC Mega Man Vitality Formula Vitamins, even though apparently uh, some of those vitamins now have, I think they said plant food or something or sawdust in them. Eh, bother me. Maybe it's a placebo effect. And in all seriousness, though, on one hand, we want to laugh at these clowns in the Republican Party, this clown show, these ghouls who want to stop vaccinations, who use the language of owning their children. I don't know if anybody saw that. We're talking about the vaccine stuff. And one of these mouth-breathing Republicans said, well, parents own their children and they can do whatever they want. And it's very, very interesting language about owning people and owning children. I'm not winking at chattel slavery, nor am I talking about English common law and the idea that a woman was owned by her father, then property was transferred in her person to her husband. 
but I am thinking about this sort of language of religiosity and Christian fascism and the Christian right. We always have to push harder and think about systems-level thinking, and this is very, very important. So you have the outrage of the day model where people get mad about some given foolishness, be it Rainer Ron Paul talking about vaccines, give it other mouth breathers saying that the freedom and liberty of a person to not wash their hands trumps the freedom and liberty of someone to not get sick from somebody who's filthy and taking a poop or a pee in a bathroom and cooking food. And you take that, I mean, that would be actually be a great assignment for political philosophy or political theory class, because what you have there are dueling notions of negative and positive liberty and freedom. I mean, it's right out of the Libertarian Talking Points 101. But as much as we want to laugh and mock these people, this is a serious matter of public health. We have a measles outbreak. And then, as I like to say, you connect the dots and say, okay, follow the money. Why do you have this sort of outrage model of the day where you have folks saying foolish things about vaccines, foolish things about washing your hands, foolish things about public health more generally? Then you pair that up with this sort of kill the useless eaters, as I called it, a ring of fire, and others have uh, describe the language of the Republican Party in terms of their attitudes towards the poor, towards the disabled, towards women, towards those people they identify as takers, not makers. We've got a really, really sick society. And I'm going to be doing some writing about that over on ChaunceyVega.com. I mean, going back, and this is not one of those moments where people say you're crying wolf, but there's a real sickness in this country uh, about how we treat the poor. And again, we need systems-level thinking. So instead of laughing, uh, the mouth-breathing foolishness that goes against what we know about science, we need to ask ourselves, what sort of political, ideological, and religious belief system sustains these odd worldviews? And how are the 1% and the plutocrats pulling the strings to their own advantage and using these useful idiots? Because, of course, you know, these right-wing bloviators talking about vaccines, and even with abortion, for example, is another great example. Do as I say, not as I do. You find out they're vaccinated. You find out their kids are taken care of. You find out that there have been women in their families and sometimes their own daughters who've had abortions, but they want to mouth breathe and bloviate about denying a woman her right to choose to control her own body. So, moving forward, great guest. You may have seen him on MSNBC. He's a real truth teller. He cuts a hell of a promo. Unapologetic. No fear. Straight ahead. And his name is Frank Shaper. He's the author of a great book. just came out. It's called Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. He's also rose to national prominence with his book Crazy for God. He is a child of the religious right. He and his dad, he was there at Jerry Falwell, 700 Club. You saw how these machinations that we've been discussing about, for example, Christopher Kyle and American Christian fascism, how all that came into play, and how the Republican Party sold out to the Christian right wing. Some really, really great sharing here and insights. I learned a lot talking to Frank. And again, it's just the wonderful joy, as much as I'm a Luddite, as I say, the old man on the porch, shaking his digital cane at the youngsters at their Twitter and at their Instagram. That You can send a few emails and say, hey, you know, we were on the same episode by the magic of technology on Ring of Fire. And would you like to sit down and chat? And Frank was so cool. He said, absolutely, Chauncey. Let's make this happen. So again, good things happening here on the podcast known as the Chauncey DeVega Show. I'm going to drink some tea, add some honey, get some ginger in my system. I'm going to use this coupon I got, get myself a burrito and a taco and a Coca-Cola later tonight. See, I believe in feeding the cold. You got to feed the cold. Get a little of that spice in you. Knock it out of your system. So, as is my habit, I do think you'll enjoy this conversation. I hope you will like it, and I do think you're really going to learn a lot. I mean, Frank Schaefer is a great communicator, and we talk about his childhood, contemporary politics, the cultural cruelty, the rise of the religious right, Christian fascism, marriage and love, God, and this really fun conversation. Hello, Frank. How are you doing? Hi. Fine, fine, fine. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I mean, it's such a wonderful uh, 
opportunity to chat with you here. I mean, I've seen you on TV many, many times. I've talked about you on the website, chaunceydevega.com, and we recently happened to be, through the uh, magic of digital technology, to be on the same episode of Ring of Fire Radio on Free Speech TV, and I said, what the heck, I want to send you an email, and hopefully we can arrange a sit-down. So I just want to thank you for being so generous with your time and arranging that, because I know you're very busy. Uh, Yeah, hey, but you know, I'm an author, which means any chance to talk about a book, I'm going to do it, whether it's on a street corner or uh, a blog or on the radio. It doesn't matter to me, man. So I'm grateful for the opportunity. Well, thank you. What is your travel schedule like? I mean, how busy are you in a typical day, typical week? Because you're involved in so many projects. Well, coming up before uh, Christmas, it was insane because I was on the road nonstop for about two and a half months. Um, Let's see. I did uh, maybe 16, 17 uh, trips involving maybe 35 flights and they were everything from DePaul University to Kansas City Public Library and all points in between and that was all essentially readings and lectures and talks and TV stuff to do with my uh, new book Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God subtitled How to Give Love, Create Beauty and Find Peace and so out of that came um, you know, a lot of a lot of discussion, a lot of travel, a lot of media. And of course, it's all necessary these days, because as you probably know, the publishing industry is in total chaos. And so if an author doesn't get out there and schlep around and do the work, uh, nothing happens. I think, you know, in the old days, you kind of wrote a book and publishers then did their thing and you did some readings and that type of thing, maybe a few radio interviews. These days, it's nonstop social media. It is appearances, basically doing everything you can. So there's really uh, two aspects to being an author, unless you're Stephen King or somebody. These mm-hmm. days, for me, you know, a working stiff writer who earns his living writing and selling books, there's the writing and then there's the self-promotion and marketing, which is kind of an ugly way to put it, but really it is self-promotion. There's no other way to get around it. But if you're not up for it or you're embarrassed to do that, no one's ever going to hear about the book. It's someone who's trying to navigate this business myself. But what is your take on self-publishing? Because so many folk are going that route. Do you think that's really good for someone who has the time and the energy? Or do you think that's a broken model, too? You know, I'm going to be completely frank with you. They're all broken models in that there is no silver bullet. It's not like there's a, an easy path anymore. The publishers have all turned into conglomerates. And so even if it's a small house, it's probably owned by a big corporation. So essentially... You know, I I don't have the same editors I started with. Uh, They're all in different places now, not because of me, but because, you know, all the musical chairs and conglomeration. It's not like there's some wonderful little publisher that can solve all your problems. And so there is something to self-publishing. But I would warn people and say, you know, I I self-published Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. But I have a dozen or so books out there and a track record. I have a couple of bestsellers. I've been with big publishers. I've had major agents represent me. So essentially, I don't have to prove that I can get a book published or, you know, have people think that I couldn't publish uh, with with somebody. Uh, You know, essentially, I published this book myself because I got tired of doing all the marketing for publishers who essentially look at my social media or my speaking and, and try to hook up to it. What I miss is there are less reviews because print media has a bias against self-publishing and probably with good reason because there's too much just vanity publishing going on or meaningless stuff out there. There's no way they can sort through it. Frankly, I don't know what I'll do next. I'm working on a new book and um, I I might try to go back the traditional route uh, through an agent and and a a, a New York-based publisher or, you know, it could be that I go back and do self-publishing. There's It's six, one and half a dozen of the other. There's pros and cons. I would just say if you're not at a point in a publishing career where 
you already have a bit of a track record, I would not advocate the self-publishing route. I would try to get an agent. I would go through a publisher and try to go conventionally and, and get a little respect, but also just because you need the reviews, you need the exposure, and and um, self-publishing is fine. But, uh, you know, for someone just starting, it should be a last resort, I think. For someone who's already done some things, then I think it's an option, and there's good things and there's bad things about it. I mean, the other thing, too, is I'm sure uh, you've sat down and realized some time ago, I mean, there's this huge misconception among the general public that folks who are on the New York Times bestsellers list or folks who have books produced that you can go to your local brick-and-mortar bookstore to the degree they still exist are somehow rich. Yeah. That this is a, a business that you can really live off of. And there are very, very, very few people who can do that. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. And the self-publishing, it's the same thing because, of course, you have to put up the money to get the books made. Uh, at the beginning, the... the uh, Companies, I mean, I use Create Space. They're a very good company. They're an Amazon division. But that said, it still costs money. And then I hired a publicist to get some word out. And, you know, basically, I'm still out of pocket on this book, even though it's been doing okay. On the other hand, if you go with the normal publishing route, you get an advance. And then there's always delays in that getting paid off, if it gets paid off at all. So, you know, you may or may or may not see royalties. Essentially, all joking aside, when I was in the evangelical big time is the last time I saw a steady paycheck because there's a lot more money in the God business than there is writing. So anybody who thinks that just because you have had a New York Times bestseller, you're now rich is an idiot. They don't understand the business. Um, it's, you know, I'm 62 years old and it's still hand to mouth and I'm and I make my living at it. But it isn't all on the writing, speaking honorarium, writing some sales from old books, a drib and drab of royalties from old books that have been out there a long time, you know, that type of thing. And you piece it together. And then my wife works too. And we've just patched it along for the last 25 years. And it's never been easy. And when you're out there on the on the tour, I mean, we're going to talk about all the things, all the history you've been witness to personally with the rise of the religious right. right. And the, the real sickness, and I've said this on Ring of Fire in my own writing, the real sickness in this country right now, where you have these, these strange bedfellows, to my eyes at least, of the plutocrat 1% and the religious right. And I'm sure if we do a Venn diagram, there's a huge overlap there. But the village idiots are really winning. And it's it's a really troubling time. And the thing is, when you look at the religious right, basically this is middle and lower middle class white uh, aging Fox viewers who are probably, you know, in some of them are homeschoolers and others. It's not necessarily that they're all uneducated, but they're certainly not the Koch brothers. And people like the Koch brothers, of course, look at them as useful idiots because they're always voting against their self-interest when they vote for deregulation of the banks via the Republicans or they vote against the environment based on what the Koch brothers need for Koch industries. None of these guys are actually voting even pocketbook interest because the disparity between wealth and 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 everyone else keeps growing. So essentially what's happened is, and I was in on this as I write about in my books, um, in the 1970s over the issue of abortion and before that prayer in schools and then integration and segregation and people wanting white schools and homeschooling in terms of the Southern strategy of the Republican Party of trying to pry loose Democrats who were also racists and get them to vote race and be Republicans. When you add all that up, what's happened is, is it's been a very abusive situation. So yes, the religious right is a threat, but the real threat is that they have been used by the kind of people who fomented the Tea Party and by folks like the Koch brothers who use their votes based on anger and reaction against gay rights, feminism, whatever it may be, to get them to vote for Republican candidates who then actually have a totally different agenda 
which is an economic agenda where the rich get richer, Wall Street is deregulated, the banks do what they want to do, environmental protection goes away, so the Koch brothers and the coal industry and the oil and gas industry get favored. You're listening to the Chauncey DeVega Show, featured at TruthWorks Network. Thank you for being with us. We know what to do with radio. TruthWorks Network. Listening to TruthWorks Network, the Black Voice Collaborative, and the TruthWorks Network Studios at Blog Talk Radio. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass. The Alpha Show. The Alpha Show. Fridays, 10 p.m. Just damn. Advanced political pushback. Talk radio on TruthWorks Network. Every Friday, he's all about politics. 10 p.m. TruthWorks Now back to the Chauncey DeVega show. You know, it's so odd because if you roll the clock back, for instance, to my father in the 1970s and you said to him, Francis Schaeffer, you are helping foment a movement because of the pro-life cause that eventually will be used by Coke Industries to overturn protection of the environment regulation, open up the door for trillionaires to become multi-trillionaires through the banks, deregulation and what's going on on Wall Street. Is this what you're after? You know, my father would have been shocked because as far as he was concerned, he was trying to protect babies and lead people to Jesus. Now, you can agree or disagree with that. But the point is the intent was never to put a a dynastic group of Republicans in power forever, uh, controlled by Wall Street and, and big money interests. That's where it's wound up. So it's odd because, you know, what happened is, is they were all fighting for Jesus and life and they wound up empowering Ayn Rand, not Jesus. That's right. And, and that's where we've gone. So it's, it's, it's kind of a tragic thing, really, because a lot of the folks on the religious right are people of very goodwill. And, uh, yeah, we write them off easily and sometimes make fun of them. And mea culpa on that. Um, you know, I write pretty acerbic stuff in my blogs on patheos.com and Salon and all the rest of it. That said, they have been used. Uh, and people like Fox, owned by Rupert Murdoch indust- and, and his, his whole corporate industries, you know, essentially line these people up like sheep for the slaughter and send them out again and again to vote for corporate candidates based on their rage on social issues. But the fallout is all economic. And, uh, and, and that's what we've seen. So you get this sort of phony hatred of Obama that the Republicans have pursued, continuing their Southern race-based strategy. You get their phony commitment to the pro-life movement, continuing to, to feed the rage of mom and pop somewhere who really believe they're saving babies. You know, the phony, the phony opposition to gay marriage when none of these guys could care less about it and they all have gay guys working for them and so forth. That was what I was going to say. I was thinking, as I said, your perspective on this is so fascinating because is it like looking, you know, breaking the fourth wall where you can say, I was there when this was happening as a, as a young person. I saw my father's ideas and others who were trying to build this movement around abortion and other, quote unquote, uh, morality, Christian morality issues. They were framed at the time. And I can see everything that happened in terms of, you know, one, one side of the, the table, they're playing chess and the other folk are playing checkers. And you said something really interesting earlier about, you know, religion, you know, certain types of religion certainly are a license to steal. 
It's a, it's a huge business. Oh, absolutely. You know, you got to understand the, the, the reason why this has all worked so well, and I, I'm putting quotes on the word well, okay? But the reason it's worked so well is because you have interests that have coalesced into a movement, but the interests are completely different. I'll give you an example. When a guy like Dr. Dobson or Pat Robertson latched on to the abortion issue or the anti-gay issue or the anti-feminism issue, it became a great fundraising tool. So that's their motive. Keep people mad. Tell them to send $25. We'll, we'll get America to come back to God or solve our problems. And we'll pray over your envelopes and cry over your envelopes. So, so basically for them, it's a fundraising issue. So right there, you have, you have something disingenuous. It's never the issue that's being talked about. The real issue is raising money and building an empire. Okay. So when I first went on the 700 Club with Pat Robertson back when he was starting, I was on there about seven times. They were still scraping around for money. You know, they really meant it when they asked people to send their 25 bucks. Right now, Pat Robertson's total global assets amount to about a billion dollars. Well, how, how does that happen? And his son is running it. They have diamond mining interests in Africa. I mean, this is just insanity. You know, when Dr. Dobson started out, he gave away 150,000 copies of an evangelical screed I wrote called A Time for Anger. He gave away 150,000 copies for donations. You know, he, he parlayed what he started out as a little radio program on taking care of your family into a, a, a global ministry with hundreds and hundreds of employees, most of his own family on the payroll. If you put their family earnings together from that, plus benefits, I mean, it would, it, 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 we're talking many millions here that would have been earned. Uh, on, on and on it goes. So that's their interest. They're building these empires. But they're in bed with Republican leaders and on the on the right who look at these people and they say, great, listen, you know, it's like the old mob thing. Can I wet my beak in your deal? You know, mm -hmm. you, you've got your side of the street. You, you know, you, you sell drugs. I'll do prostitution. We'll stay out of each other's way. We'll pool our resources and bribe the local cop. It's like that. So basically the message to a Dobson or a Robertson or a Falwell back in the day was, listen, you, you guys can scam the American public as 501c3 ministries. Ha ha. Wink, wink, nod, nod and make it all about abortion and feminism and gay rights or whatever comes up. Meanwhile, you just get these guys to vote for us consistently. Tell them we're the party of morality and family values and the Democrats are all communist homosexuals or whatever that is. You know, they're wicked, they're evil, they're liberal, they hate babies, they hate whatever it is we love. Um, and win-win. And so my buddy Jack Kemp and these guys strategized on how to get the Republican uh, majority in, in Congress and keep it and get the president in the White House and all the rest based on lining up votes on perpetual outrage. In other words, we kind of invented the model that Fox News then uses so successfully still today. It's perpetual outrage. And everything is a crisis. Right. And everything's a crisis. And then and then there's a twist. <laughs> and here's the twist. And that is you always portray yourself as the victim. That's right. And the minority. So there's this victimology. So, OK, right now they're still the victims. They control both houses of Congress, most of the mainstream American media, the most successful cable news channel, which is Fox News. Basically, every radio show that has the biggest punch in America, the big on, you know, right wing talk radio. Uh, one foundation after another founded by the Koch brothers, everybody from Heritage, you name it on. And the Cokes are also buying universities. Right. And they're buying universities and medical centers and putting their names on the new fountain in front of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York so that they look like they're a cultural, wonderful something. And 
the game has changed because the way I would put it is that back in the day in the 70s and 80s when dad and I were out on the hustings trying to get people like Jack Kemp and Ronald Reagan and Bush Sr. and, and, and uh, President Ford and others to line up with our social vision, we were outsiders. We were crazy people knocking on their door and they paid attention because it made political sense. So Ronald Reagan, for instance, after talking to pro-life people and my dad and others changed his view on abortion for expedience sake. He legalized it in California as governor. Then he suddenly became pro-life, quote unquote, uh, when he was running for the presidency. But he was a regular politician. You got to understand that. He wasn't a crazy person, nor was Jack Kemp. These were straight up people who had some, you know, they, there was still a relationship to people like Eisenhower. They were still on the same planet. They were just straight up, we want to win elections. The difference is fast forward now when you get to a guy like Ted Cruz, he's a true believer. So the, the crazy people aren't on the outside now agitating for change from real politicians. They are now the insiders actually running the show. So George W. Bush was the first genuine, bona fide, pro-life, evangelical nutcase who believed in the end times, Jesus is coming back, defend Israel, start a war with Iraq for any reason because we've got to be in the Middle East. It's all part of prophecy. He was the real thing. He was the real true believer. Not He's not a cynic. That was his problem. He actually. So when he, so when he did that interview, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. So when Bush did that interview, I think it was in Le Monde magazine, the French newspaper magazine, where he basically slipped and said something about, you know, the end times and a war between, was it Gog and Magog or right, something? Right, exactly. And that that was, you know, and that helped him in terms of his decision making about the Iraq war. I mean, that wasn't hyperbole. He actually believes. Hey, that. listen, you know, Billy Graham is touted as the chaplain to the American presidents. And everybody says, what a wonderful old guy. Let's just remember something. Billy Graham's last book, his most recent book. This isn't some crazy thing you're pulling out of the 1950s. This is right now being pushed by Christianity Today magazine in the establishment claims he knows Jesus will come back any day, that these are the end times. He's looking for the sign in Israel and all the rest. When Billy Graham would kneel down in the Oval Office and pray with a Jimmy Carter or, uh, you know, the Clintons, it was just pro forma, you know, a little piety. They brought him in, have a prayer, out you go. Same with Nixon. When George Bush was in the Oval Office, he actually bought this. He had drunk the Kool-Aid. He believed this. He believed he was serving God in a key moment of destiny that led up somehow to an, esch you know, an eschatology, an end times vision that was going to really make a difference. And that's essentially really colored his thinking. So my, my point here, though, you know, not to get off on a tangent of end times theology, although it's a pretty big tangent, uh, because it has to do with all our Christi Christian Zionism and our crazy commitment. Our foreign policy is driven by these Christian nationalists and these Christian fascists in a lot of ways. Well, look at what's happening right now with the prime minister of Israel and running our president and being invited to come address the joint session of Congress based on a right-wing crazy person like like Bonnier, bringing him in to basically throw red meat to the hard-right Christian Zionist movement in Congress that wants us to bomb Iran and start a third Middle Eastern war. And because that's the means through which the end times will be made this real. This goes forever. This goes forever. But you got to understand that they're basically serving people who believe that we're in the end times they essentially read the, the Left Behind novels that sold millions and millions of copies by Tim LaHaye, who, by the way, used to be someone I knew well personally as well, as well as Jerry Jenkins, his co-author. And to them, you know, that's an extension of biblical prophecy. They don't read it like a novel. This is real to these guys. 
And so, you know, when you when you roll back to what we were talking on before, how it's abused, right wing Republican warmongers who basically could, could care less about patriotism and protecting America, what they're protecting is Boeing and Raytheon and all the contractors they work for and the banks and everybody else, just like all these military officers now, you know, don't live on much while they're in the military. Then they retire after 20 years of service. And the next thing you know, they're on the board of Raytheon raking it in. Or they're, or they're advisors and they're talking heads on the TV advocating for war. Yeah, this is the game. So basically, there's a huge military industrial complex, exactly what Eisenhower predicted. You know, we're in one war after another that we lose with supposedly the greatest military on earth, and we haven't won any of them. And we're losing them all badly, too. Uh, you know, we have 50,000 wounded Americans who are going to be on pensions the rest of their day, suffering from various mental and physical disorders. You know, nobody connects with these guys and, or cares about them because I had a son who was a Marine, but I don't know anybody else who did, who fought in those wars uh, in, the, in the kind of class of people that I come from. You know, so we, we, have, we have a deal where, it, where this 1% under, under cover of darkness, as it were, manipulates the anger of people lashing out against liberals, tells them that they're a, they are a, a persecuted minority, that Christianity is hated, that these guys want to you know, close your Christian school, take your guns away, the president is a Muslim, whatever the lie of the day is, gay people choose to be that way, they're trying to take over the world, whatever. But it's always this sort of outrage. Well, that technique was crafted by religious right leaders. And it's been adopted by the Tea Party. It's been adopted by Fox News. So all Fox News did was basically take our pro-life strategy and the strategy of perpetual outrage. And they have turned it into a vast corporate enterprise that basically just has one kind of programming. You know, they are, they, they, and that's, that is churning out outrage for people whatever the outrage of the day is, you know, Benghazi, whatever it is. And it doesn't matter if any of it's true, like this latest thing, telling people that there are Muslim sections of Europe now that are so dangerous that no non-Muslim can go into them. It's an outright lie. These places don't exist. But it's always another thing like that. So it isn't so much the issue, it's the technique. And I understand it because I was on the beginning of fomenting it. I was one of the players who actually helped put this together. I sat down with people like Jack Kemp and explained to him that if he wanted the pro-life vote, we had to have congressmen and senators taking a vocal stand on the issues. And back in those days, it was very hard to get ordinary, decent politicians to do that because they would say things like, well, this isn't a political issue. We can't talk about this until they saw that it would generate votes. And now nobody even questions the technique of, of uh, you know, when you look at a Ted Cruz or a Sailor Palin or Michelle Bachman or any of these types of people, this is the only currency they trade in. They have no other intellectual currency but perpetual, perpetuating outrage, mostly to ignorant people who don't actually have any facts at their disposal. In the outrage machine, you know, there's the money side. And as they say, you know, always follow the money. And again, since you've been there, you understand the religious right. You were there with your dad. You were watching these wheels spin and these machinations come to fruition. So let's say you're a leader of one of these prosperity uh, ministries or one of these sort of Christian right-wing fascist huge mega churches. Is it literally that they go to training sessions and they get talking points from the 1% and the folks on high about these techniques and they're given a script to follow? Or is it they know that it's a business, they don't believe what they're saying, or do they convince themselves that this is what God is saying and if I'm enriched because of it, it's my just rewards. I mean, what's the inside game? Well, the inside game is a bit of both. There's people who just think, yeah, see, God's blessing me because I'm getting richer and therefore this must be right. And there's a lot of other people who are much more cynical than that. 
I'd say most of it starts out with some people who are complete freaks from the beginning, but a lot of them start out fairly sincerely. But after they played the game for 20 or 30 years, they don't believe a word of it. And my guess is they don't believe the theology anymore either. I mean, I found from my personal experience, as I write about in my memoir, Crazy for God, and I also continue in my book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, you know, the subtitle is How to Give Love, Create Beauty, and Find Peace. Well, one of the ways I found peace and was able to still give love and create some beauty was by getting out of this movement while I was young enough to create a different kind of a life where my spirituality was not a means to both power and a paycheck. And I don't think that there's any way to lose your faith faster, completely lose it, become an absolute cynic and liar if you continue pulling the paycheck and or just walk away and, and join the new atheist movement if that's if you come from a religious background, than to stay in so-called professional religious work. Because it is it is the territory of greed and flakes and power hungry people. I mean, look look at the tragic story of Franklin Graham. I knew him when I was nine years old. We're both the same age. And Franklin walked away from his father's ministry for a while, just like I walked away from my background. The only difference is he came back. I mean, he took put his finger up to the air, realized where the paycheck was and returned. Well, because he runs Samaritan's Purse, part of what he pays himself has to be listed because it's a public charity. Mm -hmm. And he, he pays himself a base salary out of money given to Samaritan's Purse, which, by the way, is a relief organization. OK, so this is money given to help poor people. He pays himself a base salary of $680,000 a year. That's without benefits or perks. On top of that, he has a corporate plan at his disposal, probably another million a year in benefits. And that doesn't even get into all the padding through things like his book royalties and all the rest of it, which he would be selling through his own organization. So it's not like, you know, this is a writer who would be making some money. So I'm just saying, you know, minim minimally, he's making somewhere between three and four million dollars a year out of Samaritan's Purse, which is a charity. And when Sarah Palin went on book tour, he lent her his plane. And, and in return, she came and posed with her father, Billy Graham, to get a little bit of the, the, magic, the magic pixie dust. Mm -hmm. This is a really nefarious group of people. And uh, the crazy thing is, you know, you'll get some guy sitting out there in Iowa who's making $17,000 a year and his wife is working at McDonald's, you know, to help bulk their income. He's sending this guy 25 bucks a month to save America from the Muslim president or the homosexuals or whatever it is. So it's an ugly, 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 ugly picture. And, uh, you know, what I try to offer as an alternative in my book is a spirituality that embraces paradox and beauty rather than this kind of certainty addiction that these guys are selling. You know, you accept Jesus, now everything's fine, and or send us 25 bucks and we'll fix America. But it's always a silver bullet. It's always a sort of a corporate type solution, you know, buy our product. Um, and, I, and I don't think that's where real spirituality is. So what I do instead is I tell stories about my children and grandchildren. I try to bring it to where we all actually live our lives. We're ambivalent, we're paradoxical. This certainty addiction is something that actually deforms our neural pathways helps us see patterns that aren't there. So we believe things that are simply not true, as we've seen evidenced again and again by the lies, for instance, the Tea Party has told, or the crazy kind of intellectual lies that you have in Reformed theology, where God created the world expressly to damn and burn most of humanity in hell for not accepting him. I mean, these are things that really change and twist our brains. 
And so my feeling has been having come out of that background. I write different kind of books. You know, I write fiction and nonfiction, secular books, books on religion. But one of the themes that runs through my book is basically trying to be honest about the level of self-delusion that this culture sells when it comes to things wrapped as Christianity, spirituality, religion, and so forth. And the, the level of delusion and self-delusion and the outright lying that has gone on, all protected by separation of church and state, all protected by a tax code that makes this kind of work non-profit, is genuinely horrible. I mean, it really has undermined any any credibility. And of course, when you see all these people now who are saying that they have no religious affiliation, who look at religion as a totally commercialized, flaky operation, this has been the result. So the funny thing is, if you really did love, you know, Bible-based fundamentalist, quote, inerrant Christianity, which is not my shtick at all, but let's just say for the argument I'd stuck with the program, I'd be saying much the same thing because nothing has destroyed the program more than its success. I know you're pressed for time. And as we wind down, just two quick questions, because I promised the fans of the podcast and I wrote on the website, as I said, you know, I was writing extensively about Christopher Kyle and the new movie American Sniper. Have you had a chance to see it? No, because, you know, and, and I'm not sure I will. Listen, I had a son who fought twice in Afghanistan, once in Iraq and once in the Horn of Africa. John went into the Marine Corps in 1999 when Bill Clinton was president as a high school lark. And then after 9-11, it got very serious. None of my friends had kids in the military. And, uh, you know, my son had came away from those experiences intact. I've got three of his grandchildren living across, three of my grandchildren living across the street that are his children that I played with every day, was just with them 10 minutes ago before we started this interview. And for me, you know, this kind of Clint Eastwood take on the on the war and the American take on these useless, murderous wars that we have lost, there's absolutely nothing heroic about it. So I couldn't stomach it because I've been there and done it for real. I have sat in my house waiting for the sound of the crunch of gravel on my driveway when a van comes up to tell me my son was killed, which didn't happen, thank God. But I went to, to military funerals where it had happened with parents just like me. The last thing I, I'm interested in is seeing some right-wing Republican vision of a heroic enterprise where somehow, you know, victory is given in defeat, when actually we've lost every single encounter we've had with all these people because these were all dumb things we got into for no reason. So one interesting thing my son said to me about the Afghan war, he doesn't talk much about his experiences, but, you know, he, he said, you know, this was a war that, was always lost, Dad. We just didn't know it at the time. And the time being when he went in there. And that was supposedly the good war. And when it comes to Iraq, you know, there's nothing glorious about a sniper in Iraq because the whole thing was built on a lie. It's all lost. And all George Bush and this sniper and Clint Eastwood and, and all the rest of these guys have achieved is creating ISIS. There wasn't ISIS there. Terrorist, terrorists used to be, you know, these incompetent al-Qaeda types and whose great achievement was flying a few planes into a building. Now they've got tanks and an area bigger than Great Britain under their control. Yeah, the American before people jo paid for. <laughs> yeah, we paid for. So, you know, before George Bush in Iraq, terror was containable. Now these guys run countries. So you tell me about it. I, I I may go see it sometime. I think I'll wait for it to be on Netflix and watch it in the privacy of my home. Yeah, where it's, I can it's an utterly you know disgusting, foul movie. I was interested in the audience. So very quickly, so the audience, of course, you had young women there who were interested in seeing the lead star, the co uh, Bradley Cooper, I believe his name is. You had older veterans. 
you had an interesting cross-section of people who just like to see a quote war movie. And there's no such thing as an anti-war movie. I mean, that's a separate conversation. They're all pro-war movies because you can't adequately represent war on film. But at the end of the film, of course, they have the collage of all the patriotic symbolism and so on. But the thing that disturbed me most, and this is why I promised I'd ask you this question, is that there's an interview online with Chris Kyle, who is a sociopath. You know, anyone who's read his book can say this man has some serious issues. He's a self-styled religious crusader, a religious fascist, who he basically called Muslims in Iraq beasts and monsters. But he actually was invited to a church. I think the church was called the Fellowship Church, really involved with the right-wing Christian fascist movement. And he's fed it on stage. And this minister or reverend is sitting up there with this man comparing his killing to the teachings of the Bible and Jesus Christ. I mean, how can somebody maintain that cognitive dissonance? It's called Fox News, and it's called, uh, you know, the old frog sitting in the wire water, and you turn it up a degree every hour, and it never notices it was boiled to death. Listen, there's only one Lord and Savior in America today when it comes to the country and its Republicans, and that's Ayn Rand total individualism and selfishness, and there's only one gospel, and that's the gospel of Fox News. And Fox News are a bunch of warmongers run and controlled by a right-wing fascistic organization run by Rupert Murdoch that does things like bug people's phones in England to find out where some kidnapped girl is so that they can get a scoop on it before her parents even know she's been killed. These are scum. And, and there's no point in dancing around it. Rupert Murdoch and the Fox organization, this is an organization run by scum. This, you know, this, this makes the yellow journalism of the 30s look clean. And it's been married to this horrible right-wing politics that really, in essence, is about corporate profits off military hardware, selling the, the Air Force a jet it doesn't even want. And the people who get grind up, of course, is the some, you know, some 17-year-old from West Virginia who staggers in uh, with very few options, and uh, off he goes. Uh, mean, meanwhile, these Christians have changed it from the gospel of Jesus to the gospel of Ayn Rand and the gospel of Boeing. I mean, that's the deal. So they've been bought and paid for. The people down on the street level have no idea what's been done to them. The poor old military are out there trying to be honorable and do their job individually when it comes to these guys. And then you have a bunch of sociopaths you know, being glorified by somebody like Clint Eastwood, who, by the way, was liberals liked him for a few minutes in there. And now, hey, where does he come back to? It's Dirty Clint Harry. Eastwood, yeah. I'm a huge fan of his work. I think Unforgiven is one of the best films in terms of meditating on an America in decline and a revisionist Western I've ever seen. But as I said, you know, when Eastwood was talking to that empty chair, I said there are two options here. Either he's totally lost it and he believes it, or he's putting on a horrible show to shame the Republicans. So maybe in his memoirs we'll find out he really was, you know, libertarian street liberal all along. But as a final question, what has been the response to your new book on why I'm an atheist who believes in God? What are people hungry for when you go out and talk to them? How are they responding? Are they emailing you? You know, are you doing a lot of talks? How's it been going? Well, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, uh, somebody ought to do a PhD thesis on the response because honestly, talk talk about a, a sort of a revealing, unintended little revelation of a slice of American life where it's at. I'll, I'll just give you a few things. First of all, I'm getting tons of email and Facebook messages from people saying, you know, this is the first thing I've read on spirituality that gives me any hope that there might be something real in terms of of, of uh, spirituality itself, that it isn't just a complete crock being sold to us by the religious market. Secondly, I, I get emails from evangelicals who are outraged uh, saying, you're not a real Christian, you're an atheist, what, what, you know, you're, you're embrace a paradox that goes way past doubt. You, you're not a believer. And then I get exactly the same email from some of the militant atheists 
who can who talk about their day of deconversion or something, they've had a religious experience on the atheist side. They're saying, how dare you use our word? And so I kind of email both groups back and I say, hey, listen, the whole point of the title was to say that I'm against labeling. This is an anti-labeling title. I've never met an atheist. I've never met a Christian. I've never met a Jew. I've never met a man or a woman or a gay or a straight person. I've only met conflicted, ambivalent human beings on a life journey where you take a snapshot at any given moment. That's your opinion for that day. They change their minds. They grow. They become different kinds of people. They feel differently about issues that they were passionate about maybe when they were younger or something changes in their life. So let's stop using these easy labels that describe no one. I mean, take 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 Billy Graham, who used to tell my dad that he feared death and didn't believe there was a heaven. You know, this is the same guy that stands up and preaches salvation certain sure or take atheists who pray. I don't mean they say, dear Heavenly Father or Jesus, help me. But they have the same longing to reach out and be heard. They want to thank somebody. They 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 fear for their children. They 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 seek for meaning. You know, this real spirituality without the religious labels. Of course, they share that. And uh, and so, you know, when I look at the world, the, what I get back from the book is people who most of them are relieved that someone has said, hey, listen, it's not all black and white. It's not all quick answers that uh, you can embrace the ambivalence and the paradox and not feel that you're floundering. You can actually look at it and say, hey, this is actually reality. So I, I try to get the discussion, and as I do in the book, but also in people's reaction, they like this, out of the area of treating religion philosophy as something special. I say, look, let's just look at something else that's you can't define. I could have written a book saying why I've been married for 45 years and sometimes hate my wife <laughs> or why I love my wife and sometimes hate her or why we fight and other times have great sex or whatever it might be. That's how real life is. So sometimes love is bringing your wife or your lover or your partner a cup of coffee in bed. Other times it's making up after a huge fight and uh, hating the person a little bit less. That still defines it. It's still It's still love. But what is faith? Well, sometimes faith is just not completely despairing. Sometimes faith is reaching out for meaning in your life. Sometimes faith is almost creedal and you enter into a liturgical kind of worship reference and you find great meaning in it, whether it's Christian or something else. It's all those things. So essentially, the title of the book is an anti-labeling title and a pro-ambivalence and paradox label. And the reaction I get from people is a lot of me tooing. There's a lot of folks out there who really resonate with that and are sick of being presented with a world in which you're either Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or Jerry Falwell. There, there, there's a bigger life out there than that. That's one thing. And then I also have gotten outrage from all points on the compass from people who say, you know, you cannot be this. You have to choose. You have to either be for or against us, as it were. And I just simply refuse to accept that. So... That's a little bit of an indication. But, you know, one of the things that's changed since I was in the religion game was that when I got out and I wrote my memoir, Crazy for God, and now this book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, I would have thought that the outrage would have been most of it. But actually, I get very little hate mail compared to the people who say you've told our story. There's a huge exodus going on out of evangelical groups, Roman Catholic groups, Jewish groups, and others of people who are saying, you know, maybe I was there once. I still want spirituality in my life. I still want ritual and liturgy in my life. I still want meaning in my life. Uh, I don't want to believe in nothing. But on the other hand, I refuse to accept the easy package anymore. 
So actually, what I'm finding is a lot of fellow travelers. I'm not finding them in any specific identifiable group per se, you know, like club you can join. But as individuals on Facebook, by the way, a lot of people contact me on Facebook and message me. If any of your listeners want to, please message me on Facebook. I'll be happy to answer you. Same with email. Go to frankshafer.com, hit contact. I answer my my email. That said, I'm finding a lot of people who are, who resonate with this, who 30 years ago, they didn't exist. You were either in or out or you were just nobody knew who you were. Now there's a lot of people and I find social media has opened that dialogue. Up. I was just thinking very quickly that your book must really be threatening to folks who want simplicity because you're talking about nuance. You're talking about complexity. It's not a, you know, a binary zero or one some game. And I would think that for religious fundamentalists or maybe even for like new converts to more orthodox types of religious belief systems, that that would be really scary because in my own personal experience, I guess I could say that I'm an atheist who believes in God in many ways right. because I'm a spiritual person, but I really have rejected many aspects from my own upbringing right. of formal religion. And in talking to folks who were attracted to that sort of religious fundamentalism, they get really, really frustrated in talking to me because they're like, what do you really believe? What do you really believe? So, I mean, your book just sounds like it's of such value. Sort of to give an analogy, and one of the reasons I have so many personal stories in the book about my wife, my children, my grandchildren, is that I think that's really where we all live. I mean, let's get off our high horse here and get back down to where we really are at. I mean, that's like someone coming to me and saying, you know, you've been married 45 years. Give me give me the key to how you do that, assuming they'd like that. I'm not saying everybody should do that, but, mm. like, but let's say they wanted that. I don't have it. It's like, hey, you know, I was rude to my wife. Hey, but I'm not using this as an example. This, I'm just telling you the truth. Yeah. I was very rude to my wife last night. I was snappy. I came in. I kind of, you know, was. And she says, hey, you know, you're a complete moron. Why, why are you at, Why are you being such an asshole? So I'm saying to her, you're right, you know, and I climbed down. Well, that's how I stayed married 45 years last night. That's it. It, it, <laughs> it had not. I mean, and then if you ask me if I can do it again today, I don't know. Maybe today's the day it ends. Maybe she walks out and says, hey, I can't deal with this anymore. Or maybe I rush off and you know, uh, start fooling around with with this uh, pretty teacher that's at the school across the road here that I have a crush on. <laughs> so, I mean, there's no like, hey, guarantee, here are the six things you do, go to this seminar, read this textbook, you're home free. Bullshit. And, and if that applies to something as, as simple, speaking comparatively, as maintaining a relationship, now you want to talk about, is there a creator? How did the universe get made? you know, what, what is transcendent experience and salvation? And you want me to tell you it's all in this book or do these three things and you're home free? Come on. It's day by day. It's small steps. It's nuanced. It's thousands of little decisions. How do you become a writer? There's no answer. I'm a writer because this morning I wrote, period. Tomorrow I don't get up and write. I'm not a writer. So that's how real life works. And hey, you know what? You know that and I know that. Everybody knows that. And that's why it's such snake oil salesmanship and BS when you find people who tell you, here's the key to a good marriage. Here's the key to loving God. Here's the key to religion. Here's what you pray to Jesus and now you're home free. Come on. And I would say new, some of the new atheists have the same problem. Just accept science and you know, you're all set. Of course not. Because, hey, we're biological machines. We were single-celled creatures two minutes ago. We're still looking at the world through spiritual eyes, whether we think our neural pathways are just chemistry or not. The same brain chemist who says that goes home and tells his little girl he loves her, and he means the same thing I do. So he's having a transcendent spiritual experience no matter what he calls it. We're stuck with this reality of being biological machines that look at the world through spiritual eyes. Deal with it. It's not – there's no quick fix. So instead of – 
bashing our head against the wall, looking for all these silver bullets. Let's quit lying to ourselves about how simple everything is and just embrace the complexity. I mean, and that's a slogan, as I like to say, for a T-shirt or a bumper sticker. Why not? And, like- you know, send me my t- nickel every time you sell it. <laughs> 0.5 cents, half of, a, half of one cent. I'll make more than I'm making off my writing anyway. So, hey, listen, that would be great. You're listening to The Chauncey DeVega Show, a rebroadcast of The Chauncey DeVega Show at TruthWorks Network. This is TruthWorks Network, the Black Voice Collaborative, where the truth is spoken more than once. Real talk, direct, honest, forthright, and as I said, you know, so excited we got a chance to chat. And you're one of the folk who really does engage in Parisia. Whenever I see you on TV, I call my mom up and be like, there's that Mr. Frank Schaefer again telling the truth without apology and without regret. And I just want to say you're one of the folks who I'm trying to model myself after when I get the opportunities to go on the RT and have more opportunities lined up. I'm like, Frank Schaefer tells the truth and he does it without fear or caution. And you really are an inspiration. So I just want to thank you for chatting and thank you for that teaching that you do every time I see you on the TV and radio. Well, that's very kind. And I appreciate your, your help and support for this book. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. All right. Take care. Unapologetic, direct truth telling, Parisia without fear of consequence, and just straight to the heart of the matter. Great talk there, Mr. Frank Schaefer. And again, I just want to thank him one more time for being so generous to sit down and chat. I learned a lot. To actually read about these events was very different from actually listening to somebody who was there. And his point about how, you know, this neoliberal regime, and and I'm befuddled by this, really, and I've, I've talked about it in other venues, too, in other contexts, how with, for example, the rise of the homeschooling movement and the idea of privatizing schools. Number one, we know that the privatization movement and the schools that result from this quote-unquote school choice mess are underperforming. They're a way of transferring resources from the public coffers to a very small number of private interests. They don't produce positive educational outcomes. And whenever I hear black folk and Latinos and poor white folks and others embracing this stuff. PBS had a great episode about the struggle to create these private schools, and I think it was in Maryland or North Carolina. And when you kick over a rock in America's political uh, landscape, those dirty, foul, filthy rocks covered in doo-doo, you don't find worms underneath. You find black conservatives. And there's a whole line of research that is developing about how the neoliberal regime very often has a multicultural face. So you have these black folks selling these underperforming models to African-Americans as a type of freedom, as opposed to saying, hey, guess what? Let's fix all schools. And a proper education and a good education is a right for all Americans. And Frank Schaefer's point is so important in that these private schools and the privatization movement can trace their origins back to Christian fundamentalism, Jim and Jane Crow, and these Christian freedom schools. And as I said, my folk just flummoxed me on that. I mean, the way that this discourse is legitimated as a type of common sense and the market is a solution for all things spits in the face of American history and also we know about the color line. It really, really, really does. And as Frank and I also talked about, I mean, that was some real sharing on my part. Folks know that I'm not religiously minded. I don't understand the religiously minded. I'm a very spiritual person. And in many ways, I probably could describe myself as an atheist who believes in God. And the idea that we're in a country where there are significant numbers of people, number one, who believe in magical thinking. They believe in this end times eschatology stuff. They have a mythical understanding of the American founding where they think the country was founded as a uh, religious theocracy. And in the day-to-day, you know, I'm all for religion being a private matter, not much for religion in the public sphere. But in my own experiences, trying to communicate with folk who were very religious, especially folks 
who are very fundamentalist, who are really into sort of religions that are very sort of orthodox and have all sorts of life rules, and that literally we can't talk to each other about it because their response is, what do you believe? Show me your book. And I say, faith is far more mysterious than that. So I really appreciated Frank Schaefer sharing, and I really do endorse the book. I hope folks go out and get his book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. I really do think it's essential reading. Switching gears now for the 10th episode of the podcast, and it's the Chauncey Vegas Show for season three. We've had some great guests on. So as I said, I want to switch gears just a little bit and do something fun. So I'm a big fan, or was a big fan of the TV show Jericho. Anybody watch Jericho? That was so much fun. The U.S. is invaded. We have African-American characters who are spies, who are actually dignified. They're not shucking and bucking. You have the whole counterfactual. Folks who are into military history. Remember the great board game. I think it was called Fortress USA. It came out about the same time, I believe, as Red Dawn. So as a child of the Cold War growing up, thinking about the U.S. being invaded by foreign powers, never mind the blocking power of water, or never mind how the Cubans and the Sandinistas would have been able to overrun the United States. Hey, Red Dawn is fun for what it is. And of course, a black man is the first person to die in Red Dawn, just like in the horror movies. So our next guest, as I said, is from Jericho. She was on that show. She's also one of the recurring characters on the Oprah Winfrey Network's hit TV show, If Loving You Is Wrong. Her name, April Parker Jones. So I talked to uh, Miss Jones a few months ago. I said, I got a lot of great interviews, and I'm trying to space these out, trying to mix it up a little bit. So I talked to her during the first half of the first season of If Loving You Is Wrong. And she and I covered everything from her early career to meeting Tyler Perry and her thoughts on his art and work. And I put art in quotation marks because, you know, I ask real questions. I'm not going to have somebody on there who auditioned for Tyler Perry, the Tyler Perry affiliated TV show, and not ask about his very questionable uh, relationship to black popular culture, never mind race minstrelsy and racial transvestism. And there's a whole lot to be said there for why do you have black male comedians who like to dress as women? And what that says about how black women are portrayed in these sort of caricatures and how they are both masculinized by that trope, that cultural trope, and how black men are feminized in the same way. And I mean, there's a lot of great scholarship trying to puzzle that out, both in African-American studies and also in gender studies as well. We also talk about, of course, her time on Jericho and the effort to save the TV show and her future projects. So this was when I was waiting to release, sort of to mix it up a little bit. So we got serious talk here. We have fun talk, and we have interesting, smart people doing interesting and smart things. As I said, that's sort of my version of WWE's Paul Heyman's I'm the one who put the one in 21 in one, as said by Brock Lesnar, the one and only. So that's going to be the next episode here on the Chauncey Vegas Show that will be coming out next week. And as I always say, be well. Do something nice. Friends, family, our four-legged friends, especially in this winter, I keep saying that. When I see people with their pets outside, especially these people, here's one of my pet peeves, part of my pet peeve about pets. People who tie up their animals outside in the cold. Or these people who feel this obligation somehow to stop at McDonald's or convenience stores and leave their beautiful pets outside unattended. This is a horrible thing to do. Pets are routinely abused, they're kidnapped, they're used as bait for dog fighting, and a lot of them are these beautiful animals that are taken. Rather, a lot of this happens because of careless pet owners who think, I'm just going to leave my little four-legged friend outside and no one will bother him. Grow up, folk grow up. And that's why whenever I see one of our four-legged friends left unattended outside, I stand with them, just to make sure that something doesn't happen. So please, folks, take care of your four-legged friends in this winter, and use a little common sense 24-7. So, you heard the bass in my voice. This thing really gets me upset. It's an issue I really care about a lot, loving our four-legged friends. But take some bread outside, take some food, feed our wild friends, too, the squirrels, the crows, the birds. I know that my crow friends who live across the street from me, they're like, Where's Chauncey with some bread? It's cold out. It's winter. Help a brother out. So, 
call up those friends that you haven't talked to, give somebody a hug, and do something nice for a stranger. And thank you once again for tweeting and sharing the Chauncey DeVega Show. The Chauncey DeVega Show is featured at TruthWorks Network each Monday, 8 p.m. Join Chauncey on The Thought. TruthWorks Network, the Black Voice Collaborative.